You know, this afternoon is probably going to warm up again like it has been. And let's just say you went out on your back porch and it's kind of hot out there. And maybe you got the TV on the back porch. I don't have one of those, but maybe you do. And you're going to watch a football game or maybe you're out like the last gasp of summer and watch your kids swim in the pool or whatever it is you do in the backyard and you've got a nice beverage. You know, you got a you got a big glass of iced tea or a, or a Coke with, uh, with poured over ice or a big glass of lemonade and you begin to drink it, just refreshing and it's so good in that moment of being warm and have this nice refreshing iced drink. And then maybe you get distracted by your kids or maybe you really get into the game or maybe you have something that you do, you put the drink down for a little while and you walk away from it. And after, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, you get thirsty again. You're like, oh, I'll go get my drink. And you take a big drink of it. And all of a sudden you realize, oh man, this tastes terrible. And we all know what's happened. The ice in the drink has melted and it's watered down the drink. I mean, a watered down Coke is just awful. Watered down tea, you just pour that stuff out and start over, right? Nobody wants a watered down drink. Well, in the same way, nobody wants a watered down message from the Bible. As a matter of fact, if we water down the message of Jesus, if we add something to the message of Jesus, we've really not improved it. We've, we've just not made it good at all because the gospel needs nothing added to it. If we add to the gospel, what we really do is subtract from the saving power of Jesus. In the passage we're going to read today, the Apostle Paul is going to remind the church at Colossae not to allow anybody to come in and say, hey, you need Jesus plus something else. You need Jesus plus even baptism. You need Jesus plus Jewish law. You need Jesus plus some mystical spiritual experience. Jesus and Jesus alone is enough. He is sufficient. And Paul wants to remind us of that. I think sometimes for us, we, we move away from the simplicity of what the Bible teaches. And the simplicity of what the Bible teaches is that faith in Jesus and Jesus alone is what it takes to have a relationship with God. It's what it takes to start a relationship with God. It's what it takes to sustain a relationship with God. And so I want us to look at this passage. Last week, we talked about how that Paul begins a section of a new section of this book of the New Testament, and he begins it by saying, in the same way that you received Jesus as Lord, so continue to walk in him. The same way you receive Jesus is the way you live for Jesus. And Paul then unpacks some things that he didn't want them to add to their faith, like philosophy and hollow religion. But in verse 9, Paul comes back to a theme that he really started in chapter 1. And some of you who were here for that, we talked pretty deeply about some truths about Jesus that Paul writes in chapter 1. Well, in chapter 2, he kind of comes back around to that. But in this passage, what he's doing is he's giving us what it means to follow Jesus. What, what does that practically mean in our life? So let's look at the passage, and I want you to notice something as we read through. How many times Paul either writes, in him with him or through him. And that's referring, the him is always Jesus. So look at verse nine. For in him, there it is right there. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. 
and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and in removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross." When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Paul is going to unpack for us four aspects of what it means when you've asked Jesus to be your Savior. When you've asked Christ to come into your life, what are the practical benefits of that happening? Here's the first. Total fulfillment is found in him. Total fulfillment is found for him. We look for fulfillment. We look for satisfaction. We look for something that will fill the void in our life in all kinds of places. But Paul says, total fulfillment is found in him. In verse nine, he says, for all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in him. The fullness of deity. Now, let me help you with that. What Paul is saying is this, that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. At Christmas, we celebrate that he is Emmanuel. That word means God with us, God in our, in our very presence. Also, that, that word ex explains for us and, and it means for us that Jesus is God in human flesh, but it means God was fully present in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. Paul tells us that, but John also tells us that in his gospel. Now, we worked through some of this back in chapter one, but if Paul thought it was worth repeating, I do too. Maybe we need to get this. Maybe Paul was thinking they, they really need to hear this often. In John's gospel, for example, in chapter one, Paul begins with this beautiful poetic section. And he refers to Jesus as the word. In John chapter one, for example, in the very first verse, he says, in the beginning, in the beginning was the word. And he says two things about the word. The word was with God and the word was God. The word was with God and the word was God. How is he with God and he is God? Here's how. God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the Word was with God, Father and Spirit, and the Word was God in the person of Jesus. And when you read that, you might say, well, how do I know that Jesus is the Word? Because of what John wrote in verse 14. In verse 14, he wrote that, and we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, that the Word became flesh and he dwelled among us. That's referring to Jesus. That's what John was talking about. And what he's saying to us is God is fully present in Jesus, that the full, complete essence of God is in Jesus Christ. But the most shocking thing is what Paul actually wrote next. And this is what I want us to focus on. In verse 10, he says this, 
In him, you have been made complete. Now, here's something you can't fully see reading an English translation, but let me help you with it. The word translated fullness in verse 9 is the word pleroma in the language of the Greek New Testament. That might not mean a lot to you, but here's what you need to know. The word translated complete in verse 10, referring to us, is the exact same word. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, as God was fully present in Jesus, God is fully present in those who trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior. That God is with us. In the book of Colossians chapter 1, he says that Christ in us is the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so the stunning statement is simply this, that the same fullness that resided in Jesus resides in those who have trusted him. Stop looking for fulfillment and for satisfaction anywhere else. You're never going to find satisfaction in anything else. Be as thirsty as you want. Drink all of the salt water you want, and it will never quench your thirst. But there is living water that will quench your thirst. Wall Street Journal bestselling author Joshua Beckett wrote an article not long ago where he outlined the seven pursuits that we as Americans and even American Christians run after. We think we're going to find fulfillment. We think we're going to fill the void in our life. We think we're going to, we're going to fill that hole in our life. Let me give you these seven, and I just want you to listen to them and ask yourself a question. Am I looking for fulfillment? Am I looking for meaning in my life in any of these seven areas? The first is the next purchase. Oh, it's the next iPhone. It's the next uh, Apple Watch. It's the next new car. We constantly are looking for fulfillment with the next purchase, and we've run up a mountain of consumer debt to prove it. The next paycheck. We think, if I could just get that raise, if I could just get to the next level of income, then I'd be satisfied. Then I'd be fulfilled. The next relationship. My first one didn't work out. My second one didn't work out. I need another relationship. I need, I need somebody new in my life, and, and I'm going to find fulfillment in the next person that comes along, and surely they're going to fill the emptiness of my life. The next physical enhancement. I didn't know exactly what he meant until I read the article, but here's what he means by that. If I could just lose 20 pounds... If I could just get this nose fixed, I mean, we went high def and then everybody sees it. You know I mean? It's just, it's huge. Okay. I get that. If I could just get my nose fixed, then, then I'd feel better about myself. Then I'd be fulfilled. The next physical enhancement, the next one of my children's competition, whether it's my six-year-old's soccer game or it's my senior's scholarship, I find fulfillment in my next child's comp- competition or, or their accomplishment, my next job. If I could just get that job. If I could just work for that company, if I could just have, have that field. And finally, the next trip, vacation, or escape from reality. Are you looking for fulfillment? Do you honestly believe that one of those things or a combination of those things is really going to fill the void in your life? Thousands, millions of people buy into that. And they pursue it and they pour their life into it and they figure out somewhere along the way it is empty, it is hollow, it never satisfies its drinking salt water. But Paul would say to us that we are made complete in him. We are filled in him. There is a sense in which we have all that we need in him. 
Total fulfillment is found in him. Secondly, true life is found in him. In verse 12, he begins this section on baptism. And he says, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. A little background on this. When Paul would go and start a church, Paul was a church planter. He's a starter. Paul never stayed anywhere a very long time. We know he stayed in a city called Ephesus for about three years, but it's the longest period of time he ever stayed anywhere. Most of the time, Paul goes into a town He wins some people to faith in Jesus, gathers them together, forms a church, teaches them, trains one of them to be the pastor, kind of entrusts him as best he can, then Paul goes somewhere else. So this new pastor is less experienced than Paul, probably a little less knowledgeable than Paul. Paul had to think he was competent, but he he just didn't have all the skill set that Paul had. So Paul would go to the next city to plant a church, And then this group would come in. They were called the Judaizers. And let me just explain a little bit about them. They were Jewish believers in Jesus, but they didn't believe Jesus was enough. And what they were saying to their Gentile friends is, they would come in after Paul left and they say, oh, you learned about Jesus? You know Jesus? You trust Jesus? That's great. But you got to add back in the old covenant symbol of circumcision. If you're a Gentile, you got, you got to have that Old Testament symbol of circumcision or you're not right with God. And Paul is saying, no, that's the symbol of the Old Covenant. The symbol of the New Covenant is baptism, but they are symbols. And the symbol of baptism is going from death to life. I love verse 13 where we're told, he made us alive. Now look carefully at that. He made us alive. We didn't make ourselves alive. We don't get religious enough that we come to life. We don't read our Bible enough that we come to life. We don't go through rituals like baptism enough that we come to life. He made us alive. I hope this doesn't happen. It didn't happen in the first two services. But let's say, and I don't want it to ever happen, I just went into cardiac arrest right here, collapsed right here on the stage. There is nothing I could do to make my heart heart start beating again. But looking around this room, I see a number of people that I know, my friends with medical training, and surely one of them would at least have some compassion on me and jump up here and start doing those chest compressions. And maybe, just maybe, by an outside force, I could be brought back to life. You were dead in your transgressions. That's not just poetic. That's not just Paul's hyperbole. He's telling us the truth. I need to remember how dead, how hopeless, how doomed I was on my own. I could never have brought myself to life. I need to know again and again and again. And and let me say this. The reason I'm saying this I came to a conclusion this week. The longer I've been a Christian, the farther I am removed from that experience of grace where I trusted Jesus, the more I tend to forget how hopeless and helpless and awful my life was. 
but he made me alive. He did it. I didn't do it. And true life is found in him. Eternal life is only found in him. I experience when I talk to people, so many people who really seem to believe that if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, God will kind of up the ante. I know you're supposed to be perfect, but, but you know, if, if, you're, if you're close, if you're trying, God will kind of curve that grade up. My daughter is a middle schooler this year, and she's had her first encounter with the curve. She loves the curve. She came home one day from school. She said, Dad, we had a test today. I'm so upset. Now, she wants to excel at school. We're, we're not the parents who are angry and berating her over her grades, but she wants to excel. And she said, Dad, if you get one question wrong, you get an 88. That's not an A. I want to make A's. And I just know I got one question wrong on this test, and I know I made an 88. And so we tried to say, sweetheart, you did your best. You know, sometimes you miss one question. It's okay. It's all right. You'll be all right. You can, you can work harder. Average it up. You know, we're trying to give her all that stuff. Well, she goes to school the next day. Teacher hands out the paper. Sure enough, 88. But it was marked through 100. The curve, people. It's a beautiful thing. Am I not right, students? <laughs> She's loving the curve. And let me explain this to you. There is no curve, not with God. Your 99 percentile is an F compared to Jesus' 100 pure, holy righteousness. And the only way to get his pure, holy righteousness and be made alive is through faith in him. That's it. For him to make you alive. Number three, I'm going to move quickly. Total freedom is found in him. Look at verse 14. It's, it's really what we took the entire title of this series from. Cancel culture is kind of a play on words. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What's he talking about? Well, Paul's painting a picture, a word picture from the world of like accounting or bookkeeping. And what he's doing is he's painting a picture of a document. In the ancient world, if you had gone into debt or you, uh, you borrowed money, then that would be written on a piece of parchment, which you might call paper, but parchment's a little different from paper. And it would have been written on this parchment, and every debt, every time you borrowed some more money, it would be written down. And what Paul says is, you and I have a certificate of debt. It is written on a certificate in some way. And it is our sin debt. It's every time I've transgressed the law. It's every time I've trespassed against the Father. It's every time I've willfully sinned. It's every time I've even tried hard and missed the mark. Every sin builds up my certificate of debt. And I was in deep, deep debt. Such a deep debt I couldn't pay it on my own. No way. But Paul writes, he has canceled. The word there literally means to wipe away. It's just like a, a chalkboard or a dry erase board. You had something written on it, you wipe it off, it's gone. You can't retrieve it. Well, in the ancient world, they wrote on that parchment with ink. But their ink didn't contain one element that your ink, whether it is your 50-cent Bic pen or it is your $400 Mont Blanc pen, 
And that is that the ink in your pen has a tiny bit of acid in it. And that acid burns what you write into the paper. That's why you can't erase ink. By the way, if you have erasable ink, it doesn't have acid in it. Real simple. And here's what, here's what would happen. In the ancient world, parchment was expensive. So an accountant, once a debt was paid, he, he might just say, you know what, the, the account's been settled. I'm just going to wipe that off and start over with that piece of paper. And here's what the Bible says. That of my certificate of debt, of my sins, of my unpayable debt, Jesus, Jesus took it to the cross and in his body he bore my sins and my sins in him were nailed to the cross and by doing that my slate is wiped clean and I am forgiven. And once I'm forgiven, I'm set free. Freedom is found in him. Not too long ago, my wife and daughter and I were at a restaurant. We enjoyed a nice meal together, some family time. We're talking around the table. It's almost like we're the only people in the restaurant. We're just, we're just gathered up as a family. It's a great time. And um, we, the waitress came over, and she said, would you like, guys like some dessert? And we're like, no, we're full. We, we ate way too much. You know, it's a Mexican restaurant, so we're eating the chips, you know, before the stuff came. And then we ate our food. So we're full. And she said, well, you're free to go because your ticket's been taken care of. So I immediately looked around the room. Like, that's my first reaction. I'm like, okay, who did this? I said, would you tell me who did it? And she said, no, they, they won't let me tell you who did it. So I look around the room, and, and I, I did see a couple of folks I knew, but I knew they wouldn't have paid for it, so I knew it wasn't them. No, I, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I didn't see anybody I knew. You know, I, I just didn't see anybody. And um, I, I did the second thing I always do. I looked at the waitress. If this ever happens, do you do this? I said, did they take care of you? Because if somebody's generous to me, I want to be generous to the server. And she said, yes, they did. But we left a tip anyway, just because we thought it was the right thing to do. I had eaten the meal. I needed to pay. I was supposed to pay. I owed the money. But I got up and walked out for free because somebody else paid. Here's the reality. The reality of salvation is this. Salvation is not free. Forgiveness is not free. You say, Bob, I thought you had preached that before. Mm -hmm. It's free to you because Jesus paid. You go free because Jesus paid with blood on a cross. You don't need to add anything to Jesus. He has done it all. He has offered the fully sufficient, absolutely adequate sacrifice for your sins and mine. One final thought from this passage. Most of you, you're reading along in your Bible or you're following along on the screens and you're going, okay, I get this. You know, you could see that that, that fullness part and you're like, okay, I kind of grasped that. You understood that he made us alive when we read through that. You're getting that. You're getting the, the forgiveness part out of verse 14. But we got down to verse 15 and you're going, I don't have any idea what that means. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. What in the world does that mean? I believe that Paul is explaining something to us that happened in the unseen spiritual realm when Jesus died on the cross. This isn't what the people standing on that hill outside of Jerusalem saw 
What they saw was a man dying on a cross. It looked like defeat for Jesus. Through physical eyes, it did not look like a win. But in the spiritual realm, in the unseen world, the reality is that when Jesus died on the cross, it was not a loss for Jesus. It was ultimate victory that we triumphed over them through him. And here's what the Bible says. That it, by his death, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. And he made a public display of them. Here's what Jesus is saying. In the ancient Roman Empire, when a Roman general would lead his troops into battle, what he would do is he would first of all disarm them. And he would march them back to Rome. And when they came through Rome, there would be a parade. And in that parade, the general would be riding up front and they would present his soldiers to the emperor. And right behind his soldiers would be those defeated, disarmed soldiers of the other army who were being led away to be relocated somewhere else. Here's what Paul's saying. When Jesus died on the cross, he defeated the evil one. He defeated the devil. He defeated the rulers and the authorities. He disarmed them, and then he dragged them along on a victory parade. Our Jesus is our conquering hero, and our victory is in him. Now, what does that mean by victory? Well, Paul explained it another way in 1 Corinthians. He said this, the final victory is the victory over death. You see, Jesus died and he wrestled with death. And on that glorious first Easter Sunday morning, he proved that he defeated death. And in him, you have victory too. You don't have to be afraid to die. You don't have to be afraid to die. Jesus has already defeated death. And death, that final enemy, has been defeated. And now it is just a doorway to eternal life in him. What, what, what's Paul kind of saying to us? I believe that just what Paul's simply saying is this. Jesus is enough. His love is enough. His grace is enough. His mercy is enough. His power is without end. You don't need anything but Jesus. Don't add anything to him because you just take away. Let's bow our heads together. For some of you, you came here today and you know you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But you've been chasing after a thousand different things to find some fulfillment in life, to find satisfaction. And it always leaves you empty. Maybe where you're sitting right now, maybe right there in your living room, you need to say, Jesus, you're enough. You're enough. I need to stop running after all this other stuff. It's wearing me out. It's left me frustrated and hollow and angry. For some of you, 
you might be honest enough in this moment to say, I've never trusted Jesus. And maybe you've never thought of yourself as dead in trespasses and sins, but maybe today you need to realize that you are. Not because of what Bob said, but because of what the Bible said. And only Jesus can give you life. Only he can do that. And maybe right now you need to just say, Dear God, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. I have gone my own way. And I confess that I am dead in my sins. And I believe the only way that I can have eternal life, true life, is through Jesus. I believe he died on a cross to forgive my sins, to cancel them, to wipe them away. And I believe that he won over death and he can give me that same victory. I ask Jesus to be my Lord and Savior right now. In Jesus' name, amen.